What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today is going to be a Q&A episode with training-only questions, which I'm super excited about. I think Q&As in general are super fun, but sometimes they're a little all over the place, right? A little training, a little, little nutrition, a little coaching, and that's cool. Something for everybody, right? But I also think it might be fun to have a little bit more of a singular focus. And, you know, if you're looking for training questions, like, this is your this is your place to be. So, I'm going to do my best to get through as many of these in a half hour as I can. And if I have a bunch left over, which looks <laughs> looks likely... Um, I'll record a part two this weekend because uh, these questions are awesome, really, really fun. So, first question is Rachel Riani, or is from Rachel Riani, and she asks, "What's an example of what you think could be progressive overload, but might not actually be?" So, what is progressive overload? Progressive overload just means that over time you have to do more, right? As you get stronger, you have to keep pushing yourself. Now. How can you apply progressive overload? And I see this talked about all over Instagram. People are like, six ways to apply progressive overload. You can do more weight, more reps, slower tempo, better technique, less rest. Like, that's true. Those are all ways where you can apply progressive overload. But practically, practically speaking, in your training, the best ways to apply progressive overload, the most objective, the most tangible, trackable ways is to do more weight or more reps. Like, yeah, Man, if you're programming yourself squats and this this month is three by eight at with a three second eccentric and next week or next month is a three by eight with a four second eccentric, sure, sure. That's you're progressively overloading by adding a second on the eccentric, which makes it harder. That that's possible, sure. It's just not practical. Like that's not what you should be doing. Most likely, people aren't applying progressive overload that way. It's more objective, more trackable, more tangible to know how much weight you're doing and add five pounds, to know how many reps you're doing, add one rep. Like, man, tracking and adjusting your tempo, tracking and adjusting your technique or your lowering your rest times, not your best, not the best bang for your buck when you're talking about applying progressive overload. Now that doesn't mean that that is applying progressive, that isn't, doesn't mean that that is not applying progressive overload, it is. Just saying when you're thinking about doing more weight and reps, tend to be really, really nice, objective, tangible ways to make sure you are, quote unquote, applying progressive overload, that you're doing more over time. Now, one more I'll throw in there is, I think if you look back months, weeks, uh, years, and you see that your technique has improved, that is a really, really good thing as well. It's just not like, when you're thinking about doing more work than last week, you're not like, oh yeah, I'll do the same weight and reps, but I'll really dial in my technique this time. That will be my application of progressive overload. Like, fuck no. You're like, I'll do one more rep or five more pounds. Like, you're not thinking, I'll do the same weight, same reps, and a little bit better technique. I digress. The question. What's an example of what you think could be progressive overload, but might not be? I'll give it to you straight. This is exactly, uh, uh, this is a good question because it, it happens in one exact way every time. It's in the pursuit of progressive overload. You make your reps shittier. And I've talked about this on another podcast. It's like you did 10 reps on the squat last time and you're saying, okay, I'm gonna do 11 reps this time. And instead of doing 11 good reps, you gamify it and you do, you know, the first five reps you rush because you're trying to save energy for the last six or you get to 10 and you're really exhausted and you could finish the set right there and it would be a great set. But you're like, man, I need to do 11. So you do one more half bullshit rep because you know you need to do 11. You write down your logbook and you pat yourself on the back and you're like, yep, progressive overload. But like you made your reps more shitty in the pursuit of progressive overload. So I think an example of what you think could be progressive overload but isn't is when you, in the pursuit of progressive overload, adjust the way you're doing the reps and the set and the tempo and the technique in an attempt to do more weight or more reps. 
And that happens all the time. Like I talk a lot about matching or beating your previous week's effort. A lot of times what happens is you're like, okay, you know, Jordan said I got to beat last week. So you start doing half squats or you start dive bombing your squats or you start rounding your back like just to get there. And that's not progressive overload. Cool. Next question is from Lara Cantrol. Oh, it's either, that's either your last name or it's Lara Cantrol. Um, <laughs> either way, we're going to move on. Uh, question is, I do CrossFit every morning and trail run every afternoon, five to six days a week. Am I working against myself? Now, I definitely need more context for this. Like, what is your goal here? Like, are you uh, training for uh, some crazy endurance event or the CrossFit games and you're sleeping nine hours and you're deloading regularly and you're eating a fuck ton of calories and carbs? Like, then maybe you're not working against yourself and maybe that's you training super fucking hard and intelligently and fueling adequately. But <laughs> that's very unlikely the case. And what I'd like to say is the answer is almost definitely yes. That's almost definitely too much. Um, CrossFit every morning and a trail run every afternoon, like that's likely way too much stress on the system. Uh, and you would have to be doing, like I said before, everything else around that correctly, fueling adequately with a fuck ton of calories, fuck ton of carbohydrates, sleeping at least seven to nine hours every single night, deloading regularly, um, and it would have to be in the context of training for something because this is not a sustainable routine. So almost definitely yes, although, you know, I would love more context, um, but this screams to me, I'm doing this because I think I have to do this much or I will either not make progress or I will lose the progress that I've made. And the truth is that's absolutely not the case. If you did, you know, CrossFit every morning and five to six times a week, trail runs, so we're talking at like 12 workout sessions a week, like you could cut that by more than half and still see really great results and be in really great shape. So depending on what your goals are, like I'd have a different answer, but the answer I wanna give is almost definitely yes. Excellent, next question is from Aditya0208 and uh, he or she asks, what about straight sets versus pyramid versus reverse pyramid, which is best? Love this question. So quick definition. A uh, pyramid set would be something like, and I actually might have these in, in the opposite, but don't castrate me here. Um, a pyramid set would be like, okay, let's say you're doing a squat and you go and your first set is 12 reps at 100 pounds. And your second set is eight reps of 120 pounds. So the weight goes up and the reps go down. And then the next set is six reps at 140 pounds. So the weight went up again, reps went down. And then the next set is four reps at 160 pounds. So you started with 12 reps at 100 pounds and you finished with four reps at 160 pounds. So the weight went up every set and the reps went down every set. Now a reverse pyramid would be the opposite, I guess, would be starting with the really heavy weight and progressively moving towards more reps, lower weight. Now, straight sets would be picking one weight and using that one weight across all your sets. Now where your reps fall is a conversation for another day, but it's like in that example, instead of doing 12 by 100 and then 8 by 120 and then 6 by 140, 4 by 160, you pick one of them and you say, okay, today I'm doing 120 pounds and I'm going to do four sets in the, you know, X to X rep range, you know, the 6 to 12 rep range, whatever. Cool. So that's straight sets. Now, you could make a reasonable argument that doing pure, if you were working out one time, if we're talking about one workout, right, one single workout, person A does pyramid sets, person B does straight sets. In that one workout, you could argue that they are going to get very similar benefits as long as all else is equal, right? Sets are done with good technique, good tempo, and they're taking close to failure and you're doing the same amount of sets and they're all within a relative hypertrophy rep range, let's say. 
you could argue that within that single workout, each person will get very similar results. Now, here's the thing. You don't just do one workout. It's not about what did I get from this one workout? You have to string together weeks and weeks and months and years of training. You're not just in this for one single workout. And when you think about the continuity of weeks and weeks and months and blocks and blocks and years of training, something about, you wanna think about what can I track and, and what is uh, uh, tangible and simple enough for me to work upon week to week. Now, let me give you an example. If you do the, like, remember, week to week, you should be trying to make some small improvement you should be trying to either match or beat your last week's effort. So the person who did the pyramid sets, man, 12 by 100, 8 by 120, 6 by 140, 4 by 160, they come in next week, they look at their logbook, that's what it says, man, what the fuck do you do? You do one extra rep on all of those, or you add five pounds to all of them, or you add five pounds to one of them. It's super fucking messy. It's impossible to track that over time. It's impossible to really hone in and get some continuity. It's too messy to do the pyramids. If you're doing a pyramid 12, then eight, then six, then four, what are you doing next week? How are you looking at your logbook and being like, yeah, I know exactly what to do. I'm gonna add one rep on all of these. Are you though? Like that's not gonna play out the way you think it is. It's having like too many balls in the air. If you had come in and you did 120 pounds for a set of eight, a set of seven, a set of five, and a set of four, you can come in the next week and do 120 pounds again for a set of nine and a set of whatever plus one, let's say. It's way cleaner. Now, cleaner might not be a word that, like you might go back to that first example. You're like, well, I thought they would get the same benefits. Yes, in that one workout. But the person doing straight sets is going to have an easier time applying progressive overload, which means over weeks and months and years, they've probably done a better job of applying progressive overload and doing more week to week because it was easier to track. And easier to track is often this lost variable. Like when we're, when we're thinking about what is optimal, people wanna talk just about what's physiologically optimal. And they would be like, hey, the, you know, I can make a reasonable argument that those two people in that workout get very similar results. Yes, but that's only one workout. And we're talking about stringing together weeks and months and years. And when we think about stringing together weeks and months and years, we need to think about what's easier for me to track. What's easier for me to look at and objectively know, hey, how am I gonna improve on this week? And when you think about it in that context, straight sets reign supreme. And whenever I have a client who comes to me and they do pyramid sets, I'm like, okay, like you need to beat yourself next week. What are you gonna do? And there's this massive awkward silence because it's like, you have no fucking clue. You did four different sets. Now, well, let's go back to that pyramid example, a set of 12, eight, six, and four. Man, a set of four at 160, this is another issue that's just coming to mind. Like. A set of four at 160, the heavier your weights get, especially in a technique dominant compound movement like a squat or a deadlift or an RDL or whatever, like a set of four requires a very different style of technique and mindset. I mean, you're doing straight strength training. You're doing strength training at four reps of 160. And you're doing hypertrophy training at 12 by 100. And that might not sound like a big difference, but man, bracing and your technique and your mindset are gonna be very different in that four, that set of four than in the set of 12. And so you lack this ability to get in the groove, right? You do one set of 12 at 100 and your body starts to get used to that. Guess what? Next set, you're doing something else. Next set, you're doing something else. The next set, you're doing something else. And by the end of the workout, you've done a whole bunch of different sets and you never really got in the groove of hitting a certain weight. 
So that, that definitely would bug the shit out of me, man. If you're doing a set of 15 or 12 in, in one workout and then the same exercise, you're doing a set of four, those are totally different sets that require totally different mentality and potentially technique. Um, yeah, that would bug the hell out of me. I think that's, I just think it's a really messy. I don't think in a single workout, it's a big deal, but it's really messy across time. Cool. Next question is from Alichka Ilithia. And she asks, how to properly plan an average training week as a female? Example, leg day, pull, push, chest, whatever. So I'm going to start by nipping it a little bit in the butt here and say, listen, yes, men and women are 100% different. But the big rocks, the first few big rocks that you need to answer in terms of uh, uh, setting up a training week are the same. One, how many days can you realistically train? Because that is going to be... First, you want to say how many days can you realistically train and how many days do you want to train? And when you ask those two questions, you're going to come up with likely something in the three to five times per week range, right? So when you say, how many days can I realistically train? That is the most important variable. Someone's like, how should I set up my week? Every time I onboard a client, the question I ask is like, how many days can you realistically train? How much time can you realistically allot to exercise? And if like, you're like, I really want to do upper, lower, push, pull, lower, core, and a cardio day. And I'm like, okay, how many days can you realistically train? You're like, okay, three. It's like, okay, well, it doesn't match up. The first thing we need to do is nail down. How many days can you train? Great. So whatever your answer is, and I'll say, honestly, for 99.9% of people, it should be somewhere in the three to five times per week, rep, uh, uh, three to five times per week strength training. If you say six, my, I'm going to raise a skeptical eyebrow that you're actually not training that hard and that you can do six days a week because your training is bullshit. If you're training hard six days a week, there's very few people who can do that and who have all of the other ducks in a row that will allow them to do that. Most people listening to this, myself included, cannot handle that if I'm training sufficiently hard. Now, great. So you answered somewhere in the three to five. What do you ask next? Well, you ask, what muscles do you want to grow? And for most people, the answer is all of them. And you might bias a little bit more. You might say, okay, I want everything to grow, but I mostly want my glutes and back or my chest and my arms. Like, and that's cool. So whatever you answered, which should probably be everything, frankly, um, you want to train that muscle group two to three times a week. And I think for most people, two times is probably the sweet spot. A third time per week would be a little bit, would require a little bit of a more intelligent, advanced programming, which a coach can do for sure but I think taking about two times per week as your target. So now you have how many days you want to train. Let's say it's four and you want to train each muscle group twice. Great. Now you have a structure. You have, okay, I need, I'm need i training four days a week and I need to train each muscle group twice. What do you do next? So what I want to do is go over my favorite splits in the three day per week, four day per week, five day per week construct that meets the requirement of hitting each muscle at least twice per week. So for three times per week, what you don't want to do is like upper, lower, upper. Now that's not wrong. And if you have somebody who really wants to grow their upper body and doesn't really care about their lower body, you can break that two times per week rule and you can train lower body once. Totally fine. I have some clients who are doing that. Mostly guys who are just like, I don't really care too much about legs. I can only train three times per week. I really care about growing my upper body. So guess what? I really want to grow my upper body. We're going to train it twice per week. We'll train legs once. But a better construct, in my opinion, for more overall growth would be something like lower body, upper body, full body. So you hit lower once, upper once, and then everything once thus hitting everything twice. Or a full body, full body, full body where you're hitting everything three times. Both of those wonderful splits. Now, if you answered four days per week, I think an upper lower split is great. Upper lower, upper lower. No brainer. It's my favorite split. I think 
I think it's a, a, I might be a little biased, but I think it's a wonderful, wonderful starting place for almost everybody who's never trained each muscle group twice, who's come from maybe a body part split. When you put them in an upper lower split, it really starts to click how much better you tend to perform and grow when you're hitting each muscle group twice. Now, a five day per week split might look something, you have a couple options here. Um, you have, you could do upper lower, push pull lower, where you would be hitting upper body once and then push and pull. So you'd hit each of those muscle groups again for a second time. And then you have two lower body days where you're hitting your legs twice. You could also do, you could do a modification of that upper lower split where you could do upper lower, upper lower, upper. And that would probably represent someone who cares more about upper body, right? You're doing upper body three days a week, lower body twice or the inverse lower, upper, lower, upper, lower, where you're having somebody who's training five days a week, cares more about lower body. They're doing lower body three times, upper body twice. So how to properly plan an average training week, right? You have to ask yourself, how many days can you realistically train? And then what muscles do you want to grow? Likely you want to train those two to three times per week. And the answer for most people is everything, but also with a bias towards some specific things, which within the, the training program, you can push the volume harder on some of those muscle groups you want to grow more, but the chances are you want to train everything twice. And that's either going to look like three days a week, four days a week, or five days a week. And any of those splits that I just mentioned for each one of those days will work wonderfully to hit each muscle group two to three times per week. I think that's a really great starting place. From there, obviously, you have discussions of which exercises within those days, you know, exercise order, how many sets, how many reps, proximity to failure. Like we could talk about all those things, but I think that gives you a really good starting construct. I think everybody here is going to be limited by how many days they can realistically train. So before you think about anything else, think about that. How many days can you train? Three, four, five. And when you pick, you're limited, not limited in a negative way, but in a, in a, in a, uh, in a way that feels good because you don't have a million options. You don't have to stress about like, once you decide you want to train some, three or four times a week, yeah, man, there's like three reasonable splits. You don't have to make it overcomplicated. Great. Next question is from Embody Fit by Vix. I think it's a she. And she asks, what kind of position in your lower back, what kind of position is your lower back in on the leg press machine? Does it matter? I'm gonna keep this one short. It definitely matters. Your butt should be firmly planted in the seat and wedged into the back, right? Into the back of the, uh, uh, back of the, like the pad, 100%. Your butt should be firmly planted in the seat and wedged into the back. Now, with the leg press, very simple cue on how, you know, your, what your range of motion should be. You should go as low as you can without your heels popping up or your back tucking a ton underneath you, right? And popping up off the seat. So you should go as low as you can go on the leg press until either your heels pop up or your back starts to tuck and roll out of that like nice and snug position. That's it. People look at me in the leg press and they, if you send me a form video or we've talked about it, can you go lower without one of those two things happening? If the answer is yes, even if it requires going down in weight, you should do it. Range of motion and technique first, everything else second. And so if you could go lower, you're like, no, you know, I could go lower, but I wouldn't be able to push it back up because it's so heavy, man. Take some fucking plate off, plates off, get deeper, and build up from there. Great. Next question is from Tayload, and she asks, what are some good cues for lifting with a pelvic tilt and getting into that neutral position? Okay, so first and foremost, I'm not a doctor of physical therapy. For the record, um, please discuss all of those. If, you, if you're dealing with pain, uh, if this is a pain issue, please talk with uh, about this with a physical therapist. I'll, I'll weigh in with my two cents, but yes, I'm not a physical therapy uh, physical therapist for the record. Now, 
I don't think people need to be super worried about a slight anterior pelvic tilt. And I can say that on the record. I don't think it's a huge deal. I think people see, you know, maybe I'm thinking of like fit chicks on Instagram doing RDLs who have a maybe a more pronounced slight anterior pelvic tilt the whole way down. I don't really think that's a big deal. And I don't think uh, uh, sweating it and, and worrying about it and worrying about changing it is something that you need to worry too much about unless you're in pain. If you have back pain, go see a physical therapist. Absolutely, 100%. I just don't think if you start your squat, remember the descent in the squat or the descent in the RDL are gonna be two contexts that I'm gonna discuss right now. Like if you start the descent in your squat or the descent in your RDL with a slight anterior pelvic tilt, I don't think it's a big deal if you have no back pain and you're feeling in the target muscles. If you start, I mean, imagine this with me, guys. If you start your RDL and you're sending your hips back and you're keeping your chest up and you have a slight extension in your back, all right, maybe a slight anterior pelvic tilt, right? Your lower back is in a little bit of extension. The lower you go, eventually, you will lose that extension and you will fall into neutral, right? If you take your squat, and a lot of times people say butt wink, right? A butt wink is actually fall, like falling into a little bit of that like lumbar extension at the bottom or flexion at the bottom. Like, then stop. If you start your rep with a little anterior pelvic tilt, for those of you guys that aren't familiar with that term, it's like that more arched position, like that like Kim Kardashian booty pose um, where you're sticking your butt out, you're sticking your chest up. Um, I don't think it's a huge deal in the context of no pain and you're feeling in the right muscles. I think people stress this a ton. And if people see a little bit of anterior pelvic tilt, they're like, oh my God, you gotta work, brace your core, get into, man, a little bit of extension is not only natural, but it's okay, it's all right. Um, and if you're feeling in the right muscles and you're not in back, back pain, I think you're good to go. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't matter at all. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't also be bracing your core. So I think the answer to this question, if you're somebody maybe who is struggling with pain or maybe just wants to take care of this situation a little bit more, even though I would stress it's not a big deal, man, brace your core. Bracing your core is going to be your best, um, like, you know, protection against anything that might happen. Um, but again, I don't think it's a really big deal. And I think the best thing you can learn to do is brace really well and 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 increase that intra-abdominal pressure. And if you have a little bit of APT, uh, you know, anterior pelvic tilt, and you're in a little bit of extension, like as long as you feel okay, like you're good. Like go watch, man, go watch the best Chinese weightlifters in the world. They are the best in the world. They all lift with extension. They're all in anterior pelvic tilt. Like they all look at the ceiling when they, when they, uh, when they snatch or clean or whatever. And I'm not saying that you are them. What I am saying is it's not inherently a bad thing. I think that we, that's my opinion. Again, I'm not a physical therapist. Just from what I've seen, what I've read, um, it doesn't seem to be something that requires you to freak out about it and massively change your technique and massively worry about falling into, getting into neutral. But if you're lifting with a ton of anterior pelvic tilt and you're having back pain, start bracing your core a whole lot better. And the and, and coming back to your literal question is like, what are some good cues? When we talk about bracing your core, I think of two things. I th when I think of a squat, and, and I wish I had a, this obviously not the best medium to discuss this. It's good for an info infographic, but here's how I describe bracing your core uh, and breathing techniques in the squat. So at the top of a squat, when you're standing up straight, I want you to imagine that you're standing in a lake and the lake water is up to your neck. And when you squat, you're gonna go under. So what you do is you take a belly breath, right? Expand 360 around your abdomen. And you're gonna hold that breath and you're gonna squeeze your core. 
And then you're going to go squat, you know, essentially hypothetically underwater, right? And you're going to hold that breath in. And as you come up out of the bottom of the squat, as you get closer to the surface, you can start to exhale that breath. So for people, if we're talking about the squat, and obviously this goes for other movements as well, like take your, you know, intra-abdominal belly breath and flex and hold before starting the movement and then, you know, go down underwater, so to speak. And as you're on your way up in the concentric part of the movement, you can start to exhale. Um, and and one, of, one of my favorite cues for bracing is like brace. When I say brace, I mean flex your core, right? But do it like you're trying to poop, but don't poop. So when you take that, that breath in at the top and you flex your stomach, I want you to think about trying to poop, but don't poop. All right, sorry, Alexa just started going off. Had to uh, put her in her place. Cool, next question is from Medical Fit. And she asks, we got a time for a couple more here. And she asks, what are the best rep ranges for certain exercises in hypertrophy? I'm gonna try and keep this short and sweet. It depends on the movement. Compound movements that require a bit of technique and skill that you can also lift a lot of weight on are usually better in lower rep ranges. Like, we'll go over an example in a second. And, and the counter is like isolation work where you can't really lift as heavy because you're isolating one likely smaller muscle group and you're searching for more of that mind-muscle connection and a metabolite effect, usually better in the slightly higher rep ranges. And, and a good example is like, take a squat, man. Dude, a squat of more than like eight reps, eight, nine, maybe 10 reps, likely won't be limited by your quads. Remember, the goal for hypertrophy is to make the target muscle the limiting muscle. And when you think about doing a set of squats, the goal is to hypertrophy the quads for hypertrophy, right? If your goal, if you're training for hypertrophy, the goal of your squats is to make your quads the limiting factor. And if you do a set of 18, imagine doing your coach programs a fucking 15, 20 squats. I promise you, 99% of you guys are gonna be limited by either your technique breakdown or your cardio. And neither of those are your quads. And so when you think about a squat, which is meant to be a heavy compound multi-joint movement where you're moving a lot of weight, it's probably better in that five to 10 rep range. Anything north of 10, you start to see a lot of technique breakdown, synergist muscles breakdown, cardio breakdown, and you miss out on what you're really doing the squat for, which is quad hypertrophy. Now, on the flip side, take lateral raises. Man, lateral raises, imagine somebody programs a five to 10 lateral raise for you. Dude, a seven rep lateral raise, horrible. You're just flinging it up, you're squeezing every muscle in your body, you don't feel anything in your delts, your elbows are hurting. Like when you're talking about a more isolation movement like a lateral raise, it's likely better in that 10 to 30 rep range where you can isolate that muscle more. And if you're doing a five to 10 lateral raise, I mean, just think logically guys, like a five to 10 rep lateral raise is terrible. You don't get a good pump in the delts, you don't feel it in your delts, you're moving heaven and earth to get the weight up. You're not really focused on any muscles that you're working, you're just trying to get the weight to the final point, like you're not actually thinking about anything. And then think about, you know, a set of 15 to 20 lateral raises. You get a good burn, good pump in the target muscle. You're not massively systemically fatigued from holding these big heavy weights. Like it's supposed to be an isolation movement where you feel it in the delts and that's it. And so when you think about it, and this might be a bit reductionist, man, compound heavy technique dominant movements, squats, uh, deadlifts, even, you know, RDLs can be done a little bit higher, but still, man, a, a set of 18 RDLs, like not what that's for. Um, even barbell overhead presses, like stuff that is, requires like a lot of like gusto to like get ready and lift, like has a lot of multi-joints, a lot of joints that are engaged, a lot of muscle groups is probably better in a slightly uh, lower rep range, slightly heavier. 
And then you have isolation work, bicep curls, your tricep work, your lateral raises, your, your leg extensions, your, your isolation hamstring curls, that kind of stuff lends better to those slightly higher rep ranges. Doing a set, imagine doing a set of six leg extensions. Dude, one, fuck your knees up. And two, you're not there. To, you could do it, but if I had to ask you, hey, you want to do a set of six really heavy leg extensions or a nice set of like 15 to 20? Man, you know the 15 to 20 is going to give you a better pump, a better feeling of stimulus in the muscle. That's the point. And so uh, think about it logically, guys. If you're doing a heavy, really heavy compound exercise that's really technique dominant, a lot of synergist muscles, it's unlikely that doing that in the, you know, the 10 to 30 rep range is as practical as doing it in that five to 10. Cool. Um, let's do one more and we're gonna do, okay, cool. We're gonna do actually the same person. Oh my God, I, I blew it. Medical fit, you get two questions here. Excellent. Second question is, why do I feel wide grip lat pull downs so much in my biceps? One, I will say this is totally uh, not uh, totally common. I wanted to say normal, but uh, uh, common is what it is. This happens a lot. And the truth is during the wide grip lat pull down, you are working your forearms and your biceps. Like those are muscles that you are working. So it's okay to feel some tension there, but that's not the main point. You are not doing wide grip lat pull downs and bicep and uh, wide grip lat pull downs to train your biceps or to train your forearms. You're doing it to train your lats. And I think that we need to understand that for hypertrophy, the target muscle needs to be the limiting muscle. And if it's not, think about it this way, guys. In order to stimulate hypertrophy, you need the target muscle to get within, let's say, four reps from failure. I know that we're going to get a little bit numerical here, but it's a helpful construct. Let's say you need your lats to be taken within four reps from failure. And you're doing lat pulldowns, lat pulldowns, lat pulldowns. And you have to rack it because your biceps are burning and they're about to fall off. Now... Your biceps were at failure. That's why you had to rack the weight. But your lats might have been five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten more reps in them. And I promise you, that's not growing your lats. If your lats are five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten reps uh, away from failure, reps in reserve, they're not growing. And so if every time you let go of the lat pull down because you're tired and fatigued and you need to end the set, but you're doing it because your biceps hurt, then your biceps are getting the stimulus. The biceps are getting the growth. And I'll tell you straight up, a lat pull down is a shitty bicep ex exercise. So you're wasting this crazy bicep fatigue on an exercise that's not really good for the biceps. So what do you do? I, man, your grip strength isn't not important at all, but eventually as you get stronger, it's very likely that your pulling strength, your deadlift strength, your RDL strength, your rowing strength, your pull down strength, your posterior chain muscles, your pulling muscles should outpace your grip strength and straps become an invaluable part of your training. I'd say it for two reasons. One, because it's clear that your biceps are probably the limiting factor, and that's not allowing your, your lats to actually take the brunt of the work. I also think it's because a lot of people are gripping so fucking tight on the bar, and that grip, that actual squeezing of the bar, flexes those the forearms and bicep muscles. And when you use wraps, you can relax a little bit on your grip and you can focus more on external cues like, you know, putting your elbows in your back pocket and driving the bar down to your chest, things that are actually going to engage the lats a little bit more. So things you can try. If you don't have lifting straps, I think you should get them, stop the podcast, go buy a pair of Versa grips, go buy a pair of lifting straps. I think Versa grips are the, they call themselves, I think the best lifting accessory on earth like and i would have to agree i think if you've never used them and you've never actually felt your back in your pulling movements your rows your pull downs even your deadlifts your rdls 
and your grip is always the limiting factor, they will fucking change your life. But a couple other things you can try if you don't have lifting straps while they're in the mail, you can try a thumbless or a five finger grip. So instead of having your thumb under the bar, you can try and fling your thumb up over the bar. And that tends to create more of like a hook effect. And instead of gripping the bar super tight, your hand acts a little bit more like a hook and it tends to maybe in some people increase that mind muscle connection in their back. Second thing you can do, you can try pausing at the bottom of the movement and slowing down the eccentric. When you add a pause on the contraction and a slow eccentric, it gives you a second to really check in with which muscles are working, especially with a lat pull down, that slow eccentric, you're gonna feel it in your back a little bit more. You can also try, like I said, some external cues, like external cues meaning things to focus on outside of your body, which is pulling the elbows down into your back pockets. Like thinking about that every rep might allow you to engage the lats a little bit more and take some of that pressure off the bicep. And again, more than all of that stuff, you should only be trying that stuff while your VersaGrips are in the mail. Like that's when you should be trying that stuff because you should absolutely order a pair. I wish they sponsored me, they don't. I don't think they sponsor anybody. Um, they are just a game changer. Now, again, your grip strength isn't useless. It's not something that you'd never want to get stronger. Like, But man, if your goal is lat hypertrophy and your fucking lat pulldowns are being limited by your biceps, that is a waste of time. It's a waste of time, fix it. Get a pair of straps, try a thumbless grip, pause at the bottom, start to focus on those external cues. Like you're not doing the lat pull down for your biceps. So if you're putting the lat pull, if you're putting the bar back and your biceps are hurting and you don't feel anything in your back, fix that shit or go do a different exercise. All right, guys, we're coming up on 33 minutes here. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine more questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit stop on this one for today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to record another episode this weekend. I really, really, really loved this episode, I love talking training. And I actually really love that the Q&A had like a more singular topic. So we'll do some on nutrition, some on coaching, business, you know, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, whatever we wanna talk about. Um, yeah, anyway, had a blast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you to everybody who asked a question and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.